For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Would you bow with me? in prayer. Lord our God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the word of life. And we pray now as we read it, as we listen to it, uh, as we study it together, uh, that it would breathe uh, life into our bones so that you would use it to bring new life to our souls this morning. And as we respond to it in faith, that you would vivify that faith, uh, that you would uh, renew and restore it, uh, that we uh, would believe and that we would walk um, in fullness of your joy. For we ask it in Jesus' name. A Man for All Seasons. It's the name of a play by Robert Bolt. Went on to be adapted into a feature film that won six Academy Awards in 1966, including Best Picture, Best Director, Actor, Screenplay, Cinematography, you know, all the big ones, right? And uh, even though both the play and the film are works of blatant hagiography, just glorifying Sir Thomas More, uh, who's portrayed as the lone Roman Catholic holdout amid the friends of Henry VIII after his licentiously driven power grab in separating his country from the true church in Rome, which is a position that, uh, as a Protestant pastor, I obviously do not share with Sir Thomas uh, or the directors and writers. 
But, but even with all of that, uh, <laughs> I, I still think it's, it's a really great film and, and uh, play, if you prefer to, to read a play. Um, it holds forth the virtue of character and principle in the midst of a world that has abandoned principles to pursue whatever is personally or politically expedient. Continues to be timely, even today. And one of my favorite lines uh, in both the play and the film comes toward the end of the work, during Sir Thomas's trial. He's just been falsely accused by an ambitious man named Richard, uh, whom he had uh, tried to help earlier in, uh, we'll just say the play for simplicity, but both the play and the film. Uh, uh, but Richard, uh, had, he'd wanted more notoriety. He didn't want to take the path that uh, Sir Thomas was trying to help him take. Uh, and uh, in order to get the notoriety that he claimed, he, he compromised uh, both his uh, religious and moral principles in order to get it. And Sir Thomas, uh, at the trial, right after his false testimony, he, he notes um, that Richard has, has been uh, newly appointed to an important and a lucrative post. Uh, he's wearing the chain of office for collector of revenue for all of Wales. Uh, and he, so he, he, says, uh, in, he says directly to Richard, he says, Richard, it profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world, but for whales. <laughs> and while that's an especially funny line, if you happen to have uh, some Welsh friends, uh, it's, it's also an incredibly poignant and incisive one, regardless. Because whatever our ambitions are in this life, whatever we could possibly gain from all of our toil under the sun, to borrow another biblical phrase, it could never compare with what we're offered in Christ Jesus as a free gift by faith. Our text this morning draws into stark contrast even the very best kingdoms of this world and the everlasting kingdom of God. And it presents us with a choice. Who will you serve? Because when it comes down to it, all of us will either serve only, uh, will either serve the only, I should say, the only eternal, unshakable, all-powerful king and judge of heaven and earth, or we'll serve some lesser substitute that will be swept away in time, as the text promises to us. We'll trade, in other words, the glory of heaven for our own whales. Now, those substitutes that we pick, they might be jobs, they might be relationships, money, power, pleasures, self-determination, particular teachers or leaders or causes, any number of things. But there's only one king eternal. And when everything else has fallen away, he will either be to us the greatest blessing in eternity or the worst enemy forever. When it comes down to it, at the end of all of time, there are only two options. And the Lord pleads with us here this morning to choose wisely. We'll follow the basic flow of the text this morning, looking first at the very best earthly kingdom, founded and led by God himself, and how far even that falls short of our needs. 
Then we'll look at the eternal, unshakable kingdom of God and what a gracious gift it is. And then finally, we'll let the word of God tell us how we ought to live as citizens of that eternal, unshakable, perfect kingdom. So first, the text describes uh, the giving of the law of Moses, which we consider the inauguration of the nation of Israel. Because before this time, they, they certainly had an ethnic identity among the people of Egypt. They, they were separate, but, but they weren't a separate nation. They were still uh, living in the nation of Egypt. Right? They didn't have a separate national identity. They weren't yet settled into the, the land that they would inhabit, even, even with the giving of the law. But they did become a separate people with their own law and governance structure when God gave it to them at Mount Sinai. And we're reminded here of how the Bible describes that time, and it's terrifying. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and loud oppressive noises which made the people beg that the Lord would stop. The presence of the Lord on this first mountain was so dangerous to them that if even a beast strayed too close to it, it might contract so much holiness that it could be dangerous to touch by unholy people, and it would have to be killed from a distance by stoning. Even the great prophet Moses himself, with whom God said he spoke face to face, was so scared that he trembled. The holiness of God as revealed to his own chosen people was awe-inspiring and terrifying. Because when we see the glory and holiness of God, it reminds us of our own sin, of our own treason against our maker and our righteous king. And like the prophet Isaiah, we are undone and we cry out, woe is me. That's why in our worship services, after we're called to worship the Lord our God in the splendor of holiness, we turn quickly to confess our sins. Because in God's presence, the utter unsuitableness of sin is so apparent that we cannot do otherwise. We cannot presume to come into the presence of the Holy One as unholy people. It, it can't work. But... The Lord reminds us this morning, when we come in Christ Jesus, we don't come as unholy people. Speaking to those who have professed faith in Jesus, the author of Hebrews tells us, but you have not come to this first mountain. You've not come to worship at the altar of the kingdoms of this world, even a divinely appointed nation, such as the Old Testament nation of Israel, much less any other nation. That would not suffice to save us from our sin. That would not grant us true entree into the presence of our holy God. It would only make all the more apparent our need for judgment for our sins, for our rebellion against him. But, we're told in verse 22, when we come in Christ, he says, you have come to a different mountain, representing a different kingdom, not the one that can be seen and touched, but to the city of the living God in heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, we don't 
We don't see that heavenly reality now, but it certainly exists now. Galatians 4.26 tells us about it, that it uh, is uh, a reality now and that it uh, even uh, rules us, that, that that heavenly Jerusalem is our mother. And the Lord uh, promises ultimately to bring that heavenly reality down to earth on the very last day. Uh, you can see that in Revelation chapter 21. The prophet Daniel uh, in the Old Testament was also shown a glimpse of that heavenly Jerusalem and he saw there already what we see in this passage, innumerable angels in festal gathering. Daniel said he saw 10,000 times 10,000, which is a way of saying an uncountable number. Because honestly, who can actually try to count 100 million angels, right? I don't have enough fingers and toes. But it's not meant as a, a, a literal measurement, uh, but as a means of describing an innumerable host joining together with us in worshiping our one God and King. And there in heaven already are gathered not only those angels whom we join with, but in verse 23, it reminds us also the uh, assembly or the church, it's the same word in Greek, the assembly of the firstborn. That is, those united to Christ Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. The firstborn par excellence, right? We're, we're united to him by faith as are uh, those in heaven. So, because when our faith is in Jesus, we're united to him, uh, as, as he promises. And, and we ourselves are given the rights of firstborn sons of God himself, whether we're daughters or sons ourselves. And whatever our birth order on earth happens to be, we are accepted as heirs, as firstborn sons. We enjoy those birthrights now by faith in Jesus, which is why the author reminded us uh, just a few verses before this, earlier in chapter 12, how foolish it would be for us to disregard our birthright as Esau did, to trade the glories of our identity as sons and daughters of the eternal, unshakable king for identities as citizens of any earthly kingdom or followers of any earthly leader. We have a greater and more glorious and more gracious and more lasting identity that's bound up with Jesus himself, the perfect one who loves us and who died for us. He makes us firstborn sons by his grace. And our membership in God's family is totally secure in We are adopted now, full members of the family, heirs of all the promises of God that Jesus himself earned access to by his perfect life and sacrificial death in obedience to his Father's command. Those promises become ours by faith in him. In short, if your faith for your present and eternal future is in Jesus alone as your righteousness, then you are already a part of that assembly of the firstborn. We're just waiting on our matriculation date 
as it were, when we're enrolled in the kingdom of heaven as those who already await us there are now, those who lived and died by faith in Jesus before us and thus were made perfect in him, as the text says, uh, made perfect by his perfection. We're still in, in verse 23, if you're, if you're following along, that's where, <laughs> where we find all of those, uh, those phrases there. And, and as we come to worship, as we do every Sunday, we also come, as we're reminded here, to God, the judge of all. But, you may ask, how can we do that? Now, we just said we, we uh, can't come into his holy presence as sinners, which all of us are. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, the reason we can come and not be consumed by God's holiness is the same reason we don't remain in our confession of sin in our order of worship, but we're drawn to an assurance of pardon. Because verse 24 then tells us that we also come in and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now Abel, as I'm sure you remember, was uh, famously put to death by his brother Cain. And the Lord told Cain that his brother's blood cried out to him from the ground. See, Abel's blood cried out for vengeance, for judgment. You know, Jesus was also killed by his brothers. Both literally by his, his brothers according to the flesh in, in the Jewish people, but, but also spiritually and no less truly by us, by those adopted and given the rights of firstborn sons in the family of God. We, his brothers and sisters, also put Jesus to death by our sins because death is the only penalty for our sins. That's how bad they are. And determined to save us from the punishment we deserve, Jesus paid that penalty himself so that we could be made perfect, so that we could be adopted as firstborn sons, so that we could enter into the presence of the judge of all and not be utterly consumed because our God is a consuming fire. But Jesus, the only one to ever live a perfect, sinless life, was consumed by the fiery wrath of God in our place so that we would not be consumed, but rather adopted so that undeserving sinners, rebels against our gracious King, we could share in the glory that He earned. We deserve death for our treason. Jesus gave us his eternal reward instead. So when you come to the king, to the judge of heaven and earth, to almighty God who sees and knows all and who melts the heavens and the earth with the sound of his voice, when you come to him in Jesus, his perfect son, you've not come to the mountain of wrath because he went there for you. You've come, the Lord tells us, to the mountain of grace. Now, when given the choice between these two mountains, between these two kingdoms, which one sounds like the one you'd like to go to? <laughs> which one sounds like the one you'd like to be a citizen of? The loud, fiery, dark one? 
or the one that welcomes you with open arms. The one where the blood cries out for vengeance and judgment for our sin. Or the one where Jesus' blood cries out, forgiven, clean, welcome, loved. Which one? <laughs> the choice seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? It's, it's Jesus all the way. It has to be. When, when everything is boiled down, when God shakes, as the text says, all of reality, everything in heaven and earth, what remains in the end, when God promises he will uh, shake everything so that anything uh, that is created, anything that can be touched, will uh, be shaken away. What remains when that happens is only God himself the unshakable one. So among all the things we don't know, all the confusing choices we have day in and day out, one thing, one thing is perfectly clear. At the end of everything, we will face God, all of us. And we will either face the closed fist of his wrath for our sin, or we will face the open arms of his welcome in Jesus because our sin has been paid for by his grace through faith in him. Now that's the, both at, at the same time both the simplest, I think, and the most profound truth in all of creation. Uh, it, it is a truth that will never be proved false. It is one that will never lead us astray. You know, there are a lot of things in life that are presented to us as, uh, I, I think, false dichotomies, right? As, as choices between uh, only two options, when the reality is there are usually an abundance of third and fourth and fifth ways, right? And people will say, you're either for this or you're against it. Well, I mean, we're complicated people, right? And we live in a complicated world. And we can recognize our ability to affirm some aspects of a position, without endorsing everything about it, and to reject some aspects without rejecting the whole thing. That's the reality we live in. But what we have in Jesus is not a complicated or complex decision. He makes it very, very simple so that nobody misses it. There's no middle ground where we have to decide for ourselves what parts of Jesus are good and what parts are not so good. What parts we might rather leave on the table? I'll take your forgiveness, Jesus, but you can keep your sexual ethic. I like that emphasis on self-control, but could you talk less about my need to care for the poor or the pitfalls of gaining wealth? Jesus is not an a la carte menu, and he doesn't offer dual citizenship in his kingdom. We either come to the whole Jesus or we reject him. Because if we reject any part of Jesus, we're rejecting the real Jesus. We're rejecting, ultimately, God himself. Right? There's no part of Jesus that is in need of improvement. Okay? The, the Jesus that calls us to countercultural obedience is the same Jesus that forgives us completely when we fail. So when we're told in verse 25 to see to it that we do not refuse him who is speaking, it means not refusing anything that he says, either the better word of his forgiveness or any of his other teachings, any of his ethical teachings, for example. 
We must not replace Jesus's words with the words of the kingdoms of this world. Whether those kingdoms stand in open and obvious opposition to the king of kings, or whether they would even claim to stand for his values, we cannot replace his words with any other words. Because any uh, words that come from uh, the kingdoms of this world, anything that comes from creation. It'll all be shaken into dust in the end. Only the actual words of Jesus will remain. Those are the words that we must not refuse, the words of our true king. Now, if we wisely choose the second mountain, the eternal kingdom, then as citizens of that kingdom by his grace, Uh, Because as as stubborn as we are, we will reject and deny it to our own peril unless the Lord himself gives us the faith to to recognize it as his gracious and and, and true kingdom and put our faith and trust in him for eternity. I say, if, if we are citizens of that eternal and unshakable kingdom by Jesus's grace, then we we, we seek to, to walk according to the words of our king, right? That, that's, that's just a uh, logic, but, but it's also uh, directly what we're called to in this text. Now, it's still a simple choice, isn't it? We can uh, obey now in this limited time we have on this earth, right? Temporary obedience, if you will, to the one who loves you and died for you, and in exchange, he gives eternal joy and bliss, or temporary self-determination in exchange for eternal fire and gloom, right? It's still a pretty easy choice, isn't it? Now, the fact that people reject this simple truth doesn't change the truth of it. The, The God of all truth is still a more trustworthy source than our own feelings about what we think is true. In fact, as we're warned here, if if we reject this truth that God himself teaches us, it'll be worse for us than simply living and dying under that uh, older administration of the covenant and trying to stand on our own two feet instead of trusting God for the grace he gave back then. It's even worse to reject Jesus because uh, we see more of God's grace. We're rejecting an even greater picture of the Lord himself. In light of the even greater offer of grace in Jesus, there is no good reason to reject God's free offer of eternal welcome and joy in Christ Jesus. The choice is so simple and so gracious. Uh, And and, and this is a truth that that everybody ought to be able to recognize, right? A a truth uh, that we can confidently take to our family members and to our neighbors and to our loved ones and, and even complete strangers if the Lord leads us to. It's, it's a good, uh, s- simple, and gracious, and loving uh, truth. And, and it's good for us because it is so simple, right? And it's so relevant for everyone because uh, the Lord himself has promised, and his promises never fail. He's promised to shake away everything else that we might put our trust in. So everyone is included. Uh, this, this, uh, this choice is relevant for everyone. It's not something that uh, some people might care about, but uh, other people don't really need to. It's, it's a choice we all have to make.
Because the only unshakable refuge that we have, the only name by which we must be saved is Jesus. The kingdoms, the nations, the rulers of this world come and go. Even the very greatest fall after uh, enough time into the ash bin of history. And our own will be no exception, whether sooner or later, and we're all hoping for later. (laughs) But nothing in this world will last. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, will. Because it is wrapped up in the person of God himself, the unshakable shaker. And all of that brings us then to verse 28. So far, everything we've read and discussed has been truth, and, and it's building up to this one verse which tells us what to do with this truth, how to respond. Therefore, it says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let's be grateful always for our citizenship in the unshakable kingdom of God. No matter what else is going on around us, no matter how much the nations shake or our leaders shake or the political systems that we put our trust in shake or our dear relationships shake or our health, either physical or mental, shakes, if even our very faith is shaken, we have an unshakable God in whom we can rest our weary, shaky faith and our battered hopes. He will not come undone. No matter what happens around us or even to us, God is big enough to handle it. Even when we fail to offer acceptable worship, even uh, when we're tempted to refuse him who is speaking to us in his word this morning or any time, even when we aren't as grateful as we should be, Jesus is a better king than we are citizens, and he's a better savior than we are sinners. Not because he just tolerates our sin. He's still the judge of all and, and a perfectly righteous one but because his love has already overcome our sins, all of them, even the future ones we have yet to commit. (laughs) He knew them all, and he still chose to die in our place, in your place, and in mine. And the only proper response to such amazing love is grateful worship. We do that every Sunday morning, as we've already talked about. But, you know, worship is not just a Sunday morning activity. Our lives are lived in worship. And we live to bring glory either to the one true and eternal king or to someone or something else as a substitute. Let us offer to our God acceptable, grateful worship. And that means uh, not just saying that he's the most important thing in our lives, but, you know, acting as if what's going on in the news is more important because it takes a lot more of our time and thought. Or, or like a relationship we're pursuing is more important. Or like our financial well-being or our health is more important. Or anything else. Now, Jesus, he cares about all those things. He does. In fact, he invites us uh, to uh, come to him in prayer for all of our needs. 
And in fact, we can even pursue faithfulness in all of those things when we seek to glorify God first as we do so. You see the difference? When he's our first goal, we can worship him with our finances and with our help. And we can seek them in accordance with the principles that he gives us. And we can bring him glory in the way we pursue our relationships, in the way we do our jobs, in the way we interact with people in the world around us, or the way we interact with the news that we hear. When glorifying God is not our highest concern... We'll end up worshiping our time, our money, our reputation, our security, our rights and liberties, the opinions of others, all sorts of things that belong to that first mountain, the kingdoms of this world, things that will be shaken away, things that do not hold the weight of worship. They're not even as great as whales, and they probably won't last as long. Instead, let's always find ourselves in awe of the God who came to experience life as we live it, who came to die so that his blood could cry out not for judgment and vengeance, but could cry, peace, be still, and the storms of God's wrath, the fire and the tempest of Mount Sinai would be transformed into the peace and joy of the heavenly Mount Zion. And let us revere him above all the fleeting claims of the rulers and the kingdoms of this world and anything that would claim our devotion above our devotion to our good and gracious king. Like Jeremiah buying a field before the people uh, are, are led off to exile, uh, let us also store up our treasures in the promised kingdom to come by obeying the eternal word of his power and loving and serving our neighbors, right? even our enemies, as he calls us to. Those are the only kinds of treasures that will last. Christian, if you put your faith in this unshakable God, then live now as those united to his Son, who are heirs of an unshakable kingdom, whose treasures lie not here, but there. Let that reality lead you to care maybe a little bit less about the things that this world values, things that will pass away, and to care more about gratitude and reverence and awe for the one who saved you, the one who calls you to follow him still. In this way, let us offer to him acceptable worship both individually and corporately, as the assembly of the firstborn here on earth, until we too are enrolled in that heavenly assembly. And even our worship will be made fully perfect, washed clean once and for all in the blood of Jesus, which speaks to us this sure and better promise than anything, anything we find here. Let's pray and give thanks to him this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for speaking a better word to us than we deserve. Our sin and our rebellion against you cry out against us. We have worshipped and served the things of this world, temporary idols that cannot save us. 
But where our sin increased, your grace increased all the more. So we thank you for your steadfast, unshakable love that is stronger than the mountains of our sin. We thank you for the grace that empowers us to believe in you and to worship you. And we pray that you would increase our faith and help us to trust you for now as well as for eternity. Help us to listen to all of your word, to follow you, and to offer grateful, acceptable worship with reverence and awe from lives that want to bring you glory as our chief goal. We thank you for the unshakable hope that we have by your perfect life, your death in our place, and your resurrection. And we pray that you would help us to rest all of our other hopes at your feet, knowing that whatever you give will be best. Give us a glimpse of that heavenly Jerusalem, we pray, and may it cause us to look forward to that reality and so live now as those who are headed there by your grace. And we thank you for your indescribable goodness to us. And we ask these things by your mercy. Amen.